our, our aim today. I'm going to begin our, our reading at verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene. When they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he, had, he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So last time we, we were here, yesterday, last, last Sunday, we, we saw how the Greeks in Antioch had responded in large numbers to the gospel. And the news of this had reached the mother church in Jerusalem. So they sent a Jew, a Levite, a Greek Jew, a well-known man, to Barnabas, sending him north from Jerusalem to Syria. Barnabas is tasked with the idea of seeing what's going on, testing all that was happening to see if it was genuine. So Barnabas then goes to the area of activity, finally ending up in Antioch. This city would end up nearly as influential as Jerusalem in church history. So let's look first then at the, the Great Commission, a Great Commission that Barnabas was given. He arrives. He sees that the grace of God had come to this city, that Jews and Gentiles alike were hearing and responding to the gospel. So in verse 23, he encouraged, he exhorted them, to cleave unto the Lord, to continue with Christ. In verse 24, the character of Barnabas was described for us. We had already heard from him earlier in Acts that he had sold some property and gave the proceeds to the apostles. So we knew he was a charitable man. And then, of course, in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, he was the one who brought the suspecting distrusting apostle, he was the one that brought Paul, Saul, to meet with them, putting his own reputation on the line. We read that he was a man, he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, of course, one causing the other. But it also means he was greatly gifted. And as he saw the work that was going on, he did not see it as an opportunity to insert himself in the middle of it. He could have been the big man at Antioch. 
He could have become a celebrity preacher, if you will. But as he sees the church growing, he makes a short trip over to Tarsus. Tarsus is not far from Antioch. And I would encourage you, not right at this moment, but afterward. Uh, there's a section in the back of many Bibles. Almost probably everyone, everyone's Bible has a little section back there. It's called Maps. And when you hear these names of these cities, it's good later to go and check the maps and show where these people were and, and uh, the, the travels that they made. And, and like you could wonder, how come there were so many Greeks in Antioch? Well, if you see where Greece was and you see where Antioch was and you see that there was a waterway, two seas that met together, the Aegean and the other sea there, the Mediterranean, you see that it was easy to go by ship from one place to another, a whole lot further than going by, a whole lot less further than going by land. So you'll see all these places on the map, and that helps encourage as well, because you see these places really did exist. They're not names that are made up. Well, why does he go from Antioch to Tarsus? Well, his purpose is to find Saul, Paul. It says here he went to seek him. Now, our English translation doesn't give the full depth of that word. It means to search high and low, to search until he had success. Galatians tells us that in chapter 1 and verse 21 that Paul had been in that area. And why? Well, because Acts chapter 9 and verse uh, 29 and 30 tell us why he had to leave and go that way. In verse 29 of Acts chapter 9, Paul spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews. But they attempted to kill him. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So being moved from that area for his own safety, he goes to work in that area, preaching the gospel to those in that land. Another thing that was clear about Paul was what we read in chapter 9 and verse 15. The Lord said of Paul, he is a chosen vessel of mine to do what? To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So the work of, word of Paul's work in Cilicia may have reached the ears of Barnabas, but also the reminder of the time that Paul and Barnabas had already spent together how he had heard what the Lord had done with, with Paul or Saul. So here it's clear. Barnabas now puts the interest of the church and the glory of Christ and the edification of Christ's church as his major concern. Now Barnabas, in the words of Clint Eastwood, knew his limitations. Even though greatly gifted by the Spirit, he knew they were called to 
not just make converts, but to make disciples. And while he had said to the believers in Antioch, continue with the Lord, cleave unto him. To do that would be what Peter would say, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He also knew then that the only way that this was going to happen was through instruction. And it was clear the church would need another teacher. You see, the number one task of the church is to edify, to build up the saints. And it was clear the church would need another teacher. And so he goes and he gets Paul. Now, Paul more than likely was very ready, much more than when he had first encountered Jesus on the way to Damascus. So Barnabas' call to him was like a reiteration of Christ's call. So here's a great commission. Now, the next we read would be of a great cooperation. In verse 26, we read that the two men spent a whole year teaching. And notice where it was that they were teaching. It was for a whole year that they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. They assembled with the church and taught a great many people. Now, there is nothing wrong with personal Bible study. We encourage it. But it can never replace or take the place of the word taught and preached in the church among believers. And study Bibles can be helpful tools. But they were never meant to replace the study of God's word with God's people. It is a practice of some, not all, but some of the mega churches that now have what they call satellite churches. Different campuses, they call them. But these campuses, these satellites, receive a video feed of the pastor preaching in the main location. Outside of not really fitting in with God's plan and purpose, if you're supposedly one of the pastors of those satellite church, the main church is saying you're not qualified. But this also can work toward the creating of a personality cult. Because, well, we're in the satellite church, but we want to hear the big guy speak. I know what Barnabas did. As the church was growing, he got help. A qualified man to take part in the work. And see how well they worked together. How neither would foster the Corinthian idea of attaching themselves to certain preachers. I am of Apollos. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. None of that took place. How do we know that? Well, the rest of verse 26 tells us that the disciples were first called Christians 
They were first called Christians in Antioch. Disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Not Barnabasians, not Paulists, or Barnapolians. They're called Christians belonging to Christ. It's an interesting note behind the, the naming. The name of Christian was not a name that believers applied to themselves at that time. The Greek Jews called them Galileans or Nazarenes because Christos meant in Greek the Messiah. The followers of Christ, well, they called themselves disciples, that is, learners, believers, brethren, those of the way, but they didn't call themselves Christians. It's a name that was given outside. The word Christian or Christians shows up only three times in the New Testament. The first is used here, and the name is given to believers by pagans. Non-believers. Giving that name to those who follow Christ. The second was used by King Agrippa in Acts 26 and verse 28, and he used it as a term of contempt. Paul, you most persuade me to be a Christian. And then in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16, in regard to persecution from the Roman government, Christian, it's a great title. It means belonging to Jesus. Just like those who attached themselves to King Herod would call themselves Herodians. These who belong to Jesus. So when we look at the term as it was used here in chapter 11 and verse 26, something powerful stands out. The church was proclaiming Jesus. He was proclaiming Jesus, it was proclaiming Jesus as Lord and taking that message to Jew and Gentile alike, welcoming Gentiles into the body of believers. This didn't go unnoticed. And the pagans, at least give them credit, they saw the difference between the believers in Christ and the Messianic Jews who still believed that Jesus, the Messiah was to come. They weren't bringing Gentiles in. But those who believed in Jesus were bringing Gentiles in. There's a difference they saw. And so they couldn't call them Jews, so they called them Christians. Christians belonging to Jesus. Now, depending on what commentator you read, some say it was a term of derision. I think it was just a term that was based on observation. And it's interesting that that would be the term that would most commonly be used the least noted term 
and the New Testament is the one that would be the most commonly used among believers. But there's something really interesting going on behind all this. Because those who coined that term were fulfilling the prophecy that God gave to Isaiah in Isaiah 62. Which is why we read that as part of our reading this morning. In Isaiah 62 and verse 2, The Gentiles shall see your righteousness, and all kings your glory. And you shall be called a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. And so when these of Antioch, the pagans, when they saw the believers in Christ and called them Christians, they were fulfilling the prophecy made here in that place. And if we were to go to Isaiah 65, verse 15, as God is speaking of the difference between his faithful people and those who would be his church and those who were uh, calling themselves God's people but lying. He says in chapter 65 and verse 13, he says, Behold, my servant shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen. For the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. We read these things sometimes. We, we, we look at the progression of things as they are in the book of Acts. Sometimes we miss the great things that are going on in the background. Who would have thought when the Christians were first called, when in Antioch, where the believers were first called Christians, that that was a time of fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy? Well, the last thing that we'll look at here, Barnabas, as we mentioned, could have been the big man. He could have come into Antioch and said, look, I'll organize everything. I'll be the head, the head apostle or disciple. He wouldn't have called himself an apostle. But there's shades of John the Baptist here. John the Baptist for a time had followers and he had disciples, but John said this about Christ. He must increase and I must decrease. And when Barnabas saw the work that needed to be done, he knew he had to insert himself into it, but he, his whole idea was not to increase himself, but that Christ would increase and he would decrease. And so he sends for Saul. And Saul has the same heart that the people would increase in their knowledge and love for Christ and that he and Barnabas would decrease as they exalted Christ. 
And so therefore, that comes down to where we are too. In our own lives, Christ must increase and we must decrease. Now, I'm not talking about a, a loss of identity. We were all like little automatons saying the same thing and walking the same way, you know, kind of looking phony like the governor of California. He can't be real, can he? I think they just put him in a closet he, right next to Mitt Romney. It's not a loss of identity that we're speaking of here, but a, a new direction for our lives and the way that we live and how we live. I'm not talking about Thomas the Kempis and the imitation of Christ. I'm talking about the indwelling Christ moving us, growing in us, the Holy Spirit at work in us. It's not an in imitation, it's an indwelling. It's an increase of influence, a reformation of thoughts and priorities. This is what they were after. This is what we should be searching for and striving for. They preached Jesus as Lord. We should too. But first, he must be our Lord as well. And I'm not saying we're into this lordship controversy that was around years ago. It's just simple. If Christ is our Savior, he's our Lord. There's no two-step. When he says, when he tells us what we must do to be saved, that's lordship. It's plain and simple. May God... Bless his word to us this morning. Let's stand together.